Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. In today's data-rich world, policymakers are confronted daily with the challenges associated with data governance models. The European community is at the forefront, especially in the context of contemporary policy initiatives. My name is Christopher Mooney, and this podcast is the third in the 2022 series on artificial intelligence, brought to you by the OECD's Global Parliamentary Network and the European Parliament's Panel for the Future of Science and Technology, also known as STOA. We'll hear first from the member of the European Parliament, Ms. Pernil Weiss, a politician from the Conservative People's Party of Denmark and a member of the European People's Party. Ms. Weiss, what is the importance of data in the European context and how is it evolving? Well, digitalization in general and data in particular, they are critical for the competitiveness of our European economy and especially for the development and innovation for our industries. However, volume of data is expected to increase dramatically in the coming years. Data reuse is hampered by low trust in data sharing, conflicting economic incentives and technological obstacles. Consequently, the Data Act can be an absolute game changer if it can create a data agile ecosystem that enables easy access to an almost infinite amount of high quality industrial data by especially focusing on IoT data. That means, in layman's words, the Internet of Things that could make it possible for uh, activating the network between physical objects. For instance, in the current energy crisis, Internet of Things, EOT, could actually help us to save energy by connecting thermostats, light, chargers, etc. of private households and in our hardworking SMEs. So I really, really hope that the work on the Data Act enables us to be better to reuse data, but also to connect data to make a better, a more agile, more sustainable, clean and green future. Thank you, Ms. Weiss. Next up, we have Lynette Taylor, Professor of International Data Governance at the Tilburg Institute for Law, Technology and Society, and the co-author of a report for STOA entitled Governing Data and Artificial Intelligence for All, which lays out a number of policy options for Europe's data governance framework. Hello, Lynette. Hello, Chris. Thanks for coming to the podcast. I'd like to start by looking at the European strategy for data and the recommendations you make. But first, could you just clarify for us what is exactly meant by data justice in this context? Yeah, of course. So data justice is a term that has been in use in particularly academia for, I'd say, the last sort of five years or so in response to certain challenges that came up around the data economy. And those challenges really were around collective representation, around the power of civil society, and around the recognition of different interests in data, which the law wasn't really adequately doing. I think we still function in such a market vision of data where data can really be fully commoditized. And our group doesn't feel that that leads to a good future. So you're looking for the creation of some sort of public infrastructures for groups in civil society, for communities in civil society. Indeed. So the creation of public infrastructures is one important strand of thinking. The other is recognizing the rights and interests of different communities in data. And then it, once we do that, and once we have that political discussion, other rights over data will necessarily follow, including collective representation and infrastructures. 
and it explicitly seeks to take that conversation beyond the law and beyond compliance with the law. And the European data strategy in its present form, does it do that already or? That's a great question. I think it doesn't close off that possibility, but its main focus, its articulated aim is to free up data, both for the digital single market and as a resource for European interests, states and companies. And so we look to go beyond that by asking how can data be used for more than creating power for those who already have it? Right. So to look at data, not just as a commodity. But literally as a resource, yes, as a resource for everybody. You also talk about it as as the idea of data as a commons. What do you mean by that? The best example possibly is the arguments for a health data commons that arose during the COVID pandemic, where people were saying disease surveillance would be much easier on the global level if we had a global data source about how every country is doing. And countries were indeed reporting statistics, but there was no specific health data lake, basically. And if we were to make such a thing, that could potentially be governed as a commons, which would mean a more flat kind of leadership than we currently have. Currently, leadership over data is very hierarchical because it has to fit within a market framing. Okay, let's look at the proposed AI Act, the EU AI Act, and how it categorizes levels of risk You bring out in the report certain issues around accountability, for example, and how AI poses problems for rights and regulations and oversight and contestability. So the AI Act pretty much conceptualizes AI as a set of products which are designed by either companies or the public sector and then deployed like basically like a washing machine or a car. We see it as a public technology which is going to have different effects on the public depending on its life cycle. And so we encourage the parliament to think of risk as a moving target and to try to figure out ways of regulating AI in particular that can follow that moving target more effectively rather than assuming that a manufacturer or a researcher knows everything a system is going to do across its entire life cycle. Can you give us an example of an AI system that through its life cycle might be used in different ways that might affect people's rights, for example? So you could have, for instance, a system that recognizes human faces, that tells you, yes, this is a face, as opposed to, no, this is not a face. So that system could start off as a way of telling whether people are moving through a city. That would be a relatively, you know, non-contentious use of AI. The system could then also be deployed as a way to tell who is moving into and out of public space, still not identifying people. So we still aren't in GDPR territory here with personal data. And then you would be able to control crowds, possibly figure out if a political protest was going to happen, possibly preempt protests, things like that. Then you could also maybe use it to figure out whether faces could be identified as people who've had a criminal offense in the past or people who might be undocumented migrants who also pass through facial recognition systems now when they come into Europe. That would make it a much more complex consideration of risk that would turn into political and civil rights kind of risks. (laughs) You know, there's almost an infinite set of risks that attach to even the simplest, most normal AI technologies. And the AI Act in its current draft form doesn't really center on that way of thinking. Let's look at just the notion of vulnerability that your study addresses. Does the Act define it too narrowly? 
And could you give some examples of problems that you see here? So this is a tough one. You have to make choices when you pass a law like the GDPR or like the currently draft AI Act. And we see sort of different choices being made across different laws, depending on their preoccupations and the type of technology involved. So the AI Act does a much better job of thinking about groups and collectives, because that's what AI tends to point at, than the GDPR, which looks mainly at individuals and identification. So what's interesting with the AI Act is we move into the territory of collective vulnerabilities, hence the prohibition on social scoring, for instance. We want things not to be done to society now, rather than just to individuals, although it doesn't exclude protection of individuals. With the AI Act, it gets a little more complicated because AI doesn't necessarily have to identify people to affect them. Right? You can have social scoring that is based on characteristics other than traditionally protected characteristics under discrimination law. And so we push the parliament to think about created vulnerabilities rather than static ones based on established characteristics that people are aware of. So AI may group people, for instance, who have blue eyes and red hair and have recently looked for Volvos online on comparison websites. Mm -hmm. And it may systematically disadvantage that group of people. That group will never know that they have been created as a group through profiling online. Um, and that AI is being applied to decision-making about them. And so we get the possibility that AI systems can actually create new vulnerabilities beyond those already conceptualized in discrimination law. And it's really important to think about both. We care about both. You also bring up the groups of people, for example, who cannot make any claims on their own, such as migrants and refugees. How could these groups and their challenges be better addressed by the AI Act? Well, so there are two things in that question, I think. One is that AI is often tested out on populations whose rights are often violated in other ways. Again, I'm not using the language of vulnerability because people are seldom inherently vulnerable. We make them vulnerable through social and political practices. So one thing is that there has to be a lot of attention to not testing out AI systems on those who cannot push back legally because they are disadvantaged as legal subjects, basically. They are marginalized, they are otherwise disadvantaged. The second thing with the Draft AI Act is that it doesn't conceptualize post hoc any mechanism through which groups or individuals can make claims about a system that is harmful to them. It places the entire responsibility on the developer and deployer of the system to figure out in advance what that system's gonna do. So yeah, it talks about AI as a product, for example. Indeed, I mean, if my washing machine breaks, then the manufacturer had a responsibility not to flood my kitchen and I can use the guarantee. And that is a frame, that is a product framing. With AI, if I'm suddenly, you know, subjected to facial recognition in the street by law enforcement, and I want to make a claim that it's not effectively working, either it's misidentifying people or it shouldn't be applied to me as a social group, or it's just being misused in general. There is no mechanism currently envisaged through which I can make a claim about that. And that is problematic. The overall strategy and these various legislation packages focus on this idea of data as a driver of economic growth. And you're, in a sense, trying to give it this wider perspective, a wider set of values. Yes. We're thinking very much about what are the arrangements that could support a vision of data as a public good. And that includes data trusts, data commons, data stewardship arrangements. But a lot of organizations are starting from the tools right now. They're saying, if we just establish data trusts or data stewardship arrangements, everything will be okay. 
And we're saying no, because if you just do that, you're still running data through big tech infrastructures. We should have the option that local power can be gained through data and local power can be exercised effectively through data. And that takes a political vision as well as a set of tools. Let's turn to the Data Governance Act, which also talks about these data intermediaries, which I'm not clear on. How do they operate and who are they? Well, the notion currently contained in the Data Governance Act is that those intermediaries will spring into life incentivized by the possibility of channeling data differently. And that there will be an incentive for intermediaries to essentially charitable intermediaries to start channeling, for instance, health data from patients' collectives to and fro, you know, and communicating with, with other sources of health data, such as hospitals or insurers, or that educational data will get channeled differently. You know, the, the idea is both private and public sector data should be able to flow differently because there will be new organizational incentives for managing it, common pool resource structures, basically. And we say that it's not a necessity that that will happen without a larger vision. The Data Act and the Data Governance Act are both really necessary pieces of the puzzle, but that without this broader vision of what collective uses of data and collective benefits of data could look like and what that could actually do, we wind up with the same system of market power and control effectively that we have already. Right. How about that third package, the Data Act? Does it address those issues? Well, the Data Act looks at moving data from those who profit from it most and freeing it up. But one of the questions we have around that is how would you do that without using the infrastructures and the systems of those who already hold the data? And so it seems like a tool designed to distribute power in a world where distributing power is not currently technologically possible. And so we encourage the parliament to think hard about what alternative kind of infrastructures might need to be built for power to actually be distributed meaningfully. So overall, what is your sense of where the parliament is right now with these various proposals in front of them? Are they moving in the right direction? Are we going to come up with legislation that has, has teeth and traction and benefits uh, the public good? Well, it's very hard to imagine that the final version of the AI Act will have no mechanisms for making claims at all and will not conceptualize data and AI as a public resource in some way. It's hard to believe that all the pushback won't have effects, so I'm very hopeful about that. I think that the parliament is, is clearly very open to listening to different perspectives on this and is very interested in creating a sustainable system, both socially and environmentally. And so I do have hope that we'll wind up with good law and an open system that we can continue to develop. But I think there's a long way to go in terms of developing it. And I think that the political and civil vision still has to take massive leaps forward for us to be able to really govern data for ourselves rather than for big tech. Okay, well, thank you very much for that, Lynette. That's a lot to think about. Thank you so much for the conversation. It was really interesting. Thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. To learn more about the EU Parliament's panel for the future of science and technology, go to STOA on the European Parliament's website. To learn more about the OECD's work on AI, go to oecd.ai. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.